You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Well, good news for me, Jamie. I guess I will see some football after all. Yeah? I asked my girls during the break, Nickelodeon, I think they'd be willing to buck up for in the future for <laughs> for channels that we would purchase. And as you saw last year, NFL playoff games there were hitting you Nickelodeon. You're in luck. You're in luck. You get some big games as part of that deal. Yeah. So when they're taking care of me, which I fully expect, <laughs> and maybe sooner than they anticipate, and they're making the subscription selections, at least I will have that to fall back on. Some news from the NFL coming in just moments ago, and for all of those Seahawks fans out there, those who pay attention to NFL training camps, you may want to know that Jamal Adams, their star safety, has agreed to a four-year, $70 million deal. $38 million of that is guaranteed. He is now the league's highest paid safety. I guess he doesn't need the linebacker cake after all, Jamie. Yeah, he'll take the safety money as long as it's the the most safety money in the league. So good news for Seahawks fans, Jamal Adams. You know, he's been there, hasn't been participating. He can get, get into action, start getting warmed up for the season now. And uh, all eyes will turn to Dwayne Brown, which I expect will get done uh, sooner rather than later as well. That actually might be the more important of those signings with no disrespect yep. intended to Jamal Adams. But the meal ticket is still Russell Wilson. He needs to be protected. Yeah, left tackle, pretty important position in the sport of football. As it turns out, you're going to want to get your star left tackle signed pretty soon here. And for those who didn't understand the linebacker reference, there was speculation that Jamal Adams, if he were going to be franchise tagged, would argue that he was used more as a linebacker than as a safety. And so he needed to be tagged in that category instead of the safety category. But it's all worked out. They're not going through that process anymore. He gets his cheddar. Take care of his chickens. In the words of Marshawn Lynch. We're going to turn our attention from the National Football League to the National Hockey League, and perhaps more specifically the American Hockey League. Michael Pekka set to join us here momentarily. Former NHLer, 864 games under his belt. He played for six different teams, most notably with the Buffalo Sabres because he captained that team to the Stanley Cup final, which they ultimately lost to the Dallas Stars. That's where I would associate him with the most, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely, And, and that run specifically for sure. Very good player. Some We had somebody earlier say, well, he was a product of the era as well. He played the game hard, man. Nobody ever got cheated by Michael Pekka in the work ethic department, and that would appear to be the case with the way he's going about pursuing a coaching career as well. He is now the assistant coach of the Rochester Americans, and Michael Pekka joins us now. Thank you very much for doing this. How are you today? I'm great. How, how's everybody doing there today? We are very well. I can't speak for all of our listeners, but certainly the people on this show are faring pretty well. Thank you very much for asking. You accepted this job to be an assistant coach with the Rochester Americans. Mike, why is this the right opportunity for you right now? Uh, well, so it started It started last year, you know, just being in Washington, extension of Peter Laviolette's coaching staff and, you know, kind of getting a feel for, you know, what goes on in the coach's room and preparation now. You know, it wasn't, uh, you know, obviously a normal season as everybody is well aware of, but you get a pretty good idea of, of what it entails. And, you know, I've been coaching high-level midget and junior hockey uh, here in Buffalo for the last 12 years. But I think last year um, it was a great introductory um, season for me. And, you know, at the end of the season, Lavulette just felt that now I need to go out and get more responsibility and, uh, this was an opportunity that I think would have presented itself last year had it not been for all the COVID and internal hiring. But uh, at the end of the day, it's going to be a great opportunity for me to 
to continue to grow and learn under uh, you know a great head coach and Seth Appert. Because you've been living in the Buffalo community, you know this. This isn't a revelation. For a lot of the hockey world, the Sabres are the NHL's punching bag and have been for a few years. What did you see and what did you hear, Mike, that convinced you to rejoin the organization that you helped captain to the Stanley Cup final back in 99? Um, you know what? It's, I, I've known Kevin Adams a long time, and I know that he's very thorough and patient with things he does, and I think um, for this organization to get to where it wants to get, it's going to require patience. You know, I think in, in previous uh, administrations, uh, there's always been kind of a, a quick fix to certain things and they haven't worked out and then it just seems to back everything up again. And, you know, but so, so I mean, that, that was important to know that, you know, there's going to be a commitment to, to see this thing through the right way. Um, but just as importantly, it's, I know what this team means to the, uh, to the community and, uh, to be part of the solution, um, to get this organization headed in the right direction um, is, a, is a responsibility I don't take lightly. Mike, what was it like as a player in Buffalo during the good times, right, on that run to the Stanley Cup final? We know how passionate those fans are w- in Buffalo with the Sabres. I mean, how much of a positive experience was that for you as a player and for the players around you at that time? Well, I think the thing that was great is, and if anybody uh, doesn't know Buffalo, it's a, here, here's here's a great way of summing it up. The, the easiest thing is to just work work hard every, every night. You know, I think if if the fans felt like they had a team that was giving it everything they got, it's it's predominantly a blue collar town. That first and foremost, that's what the fans want to see. They want to see the team put in an honest effort. Um, they understand the difference between skill and you know, grinders and all that stuff. But if you put in the work, they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt to get things going the right way. That's first and foremost. So as a player in that scenario, um, you can't help but be motivated to try and perform for the fans. And, um, you know, when we had those teams, uh, we never had a clear-cut number one line. We had, you know, 12 forwards um, that all played hard for one another, six defensemen all played hard for one another. Um, And everybody knew that they shared that responsibility. So the work was there. Uh, we had enough skill uh, with the work to make it work. And again, so that's, you know, that's, I mean, as a player, that's, that's all you want. You want to be able to play hard for your fans and have the, and earn their respect through it. And a, a lot of the players you'll be coaching, of course, in Rochester, their goal will be to break through to the NHL level and join the Buffalo Sabres. Is that going to be a big part of your message about what it can be like to play for the Sabres? You know, just the fact that if you bring that work ethic every night, you can be a beloved player there. Uh, without without question, you know, obviously our number one job uh, with the Rochester Americans are to move the, develop these guys, move them on to the National Hockey League to sustain a career, not to just get called up, you know, a couple times here and there. It's to, you know, get called up and, and hopefully have them start a, a wonderful career. Um, but I think part of that is, and, you know, I didn't really understand or appreciate this until, you know, I actually went from Vancouver to Buffalo and growing up in Toronto, you know, I was well aware of Ted Darling's Pauls and Tom Barrasso and Joe Barrett Perot and Danny Gare. And so there was a respect and understanding of what, you know, certain players in the history of the organization means uh, to the fans. And I think as a player, I understood that. And I think knowing that and how it helped me, you know, we want to help these young guys, whether it's Jack Clint, J.J. Paterka, you know, they just what it means to play for the Buffalo Sabres. I mean, you, you guys are right. I mean, it's been a punching bag in the National Hockey League for some time now. Um, 
but there's a tremendous amount of talent coming through the organization uh, right now and some that's already in Buffalo. So, you know, the sooner those guys can understand and appreciate what it means to be a Buffalo Sabre, because there is wonderful history and tradition uh, in this city and with that organization. And, you know, what a, what a responsibility it is to maybe be part of the solution, you know, those players to get this thing moving in the right direction. Michael, when I was doing some prep for this interview, I read another interview uh, that you had done after joining the the Rochester Americans, and you talked about how excited you are to work with the head coach there in Rochester, Seth Appert. What is it about Seth and his coaching philosophy that makes you so excited for specifically that opportunity to be on his staff? Well, when you're so in line philosophically with somebody um, on so many different issues, whether it's systems and uh, you know development. Um, you know, relationships with players and, you know, how the coaching room operates. I mean, it's, you know, I had some really good conversations with, with Seth Appert last year. And, um, and so when we, we kind of circled back um, this year, uh, we just, I mean, we just kicked it off, you know, we gelled so well. Um, and, you know, I, I think we're both looking really forward to, to working together. You know, I, I try to explain to people, there's a lot of people, you know, obviously you see the connection of me being a former Sabre, now being part of the Sabres organization. If Seth Appert wasn't, in my mind, as good a fit for me as, as he is, um, it probably wouldn't have been an opportunity that I would have considered. Like, he, he is a big reason uh, for me to, to want to take that job. And as important as that opportunity is, he, he was the big reason. Michael Peck is now an assistant coach with the Rochester Americans, former NHLer, joining us here today on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. I find it an interesting aspect of your career and this next part of your evolution that while you were beloved in Buffalo and remain beloved in Buffalo by the fans, your time there didn't end on a great note. You missed that entire season because of the contract dispute. I don't have to tell you that. How did you reconcile that at some point, Mike, and move past any bad feelings that might have lingered? Well, you know what? There wasn't really any bad blood with um, the fan base. I mean, I was... I mean, Buffalo was always our home. So even when I got traded in the New York Islanders and I moved on to play with a couple other organizations after that, Buffalo, I always came back to Buffalo. Everybody knew uh, the true story on how everything unfolded with, with Darcy Regeer and the Reguses. So, um, you know, once, once people understood how everything kind of played out, they understood why I took the stance that I took. Um, so, you know, I think, I don't think there is any lingering issues, uh, to be honest. Obviously, the organization's gone through you know, a few different ownership groups since then and general managers and everything else. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always been pretty comfortable with my standing in the community, um, even despite uh, that 2000 season. Jack Eichel's in a different situation. I don't know how well, if at all, you know Jack Eichel, but you got to a point with that negotiation and for a different reason where he said, okay, you know what, it's time to move on. That seems to be where Jack Eichel and his camp are at now as well, and it seems to be there's some... Some concert with that, according to the Buffalo Sabres. Can you empathize with Jack Eichel in that situation as a former player that sometimes you just need to leave the place you're in? Well, I think certainly the feeling can be the same. I think the the way mine happened and got to that point and the way his happened and got to this point are completely different paths. So it's hard it's hard to know how he felt the last few years and being on you know a team that has struggled and um, but hey, he's, he's one of the best players in the world. And he's, I think Jack needed to do a better job of finding a way to be a part of the solution. Now, maybe 
you know, he has some differences with the organization that maybe aren't fixable. And, you know, that's kind of been uh, aired out uh, publicly uh, the last few months. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think, like I said, right at the outset, it's, I think Kevin's very thorough and very patient. And, you know, he knows he's got a tremendous player and asset. And um, when he feels it's the right thing uh, to do for the organization, then I'm sure he'll do the right thing. And if not, uh, I wouldn't be entirely surprised to see Jack at training camp. Reading some of your quotes back when you did get traded to the New York Islanders and they weren't in a great spot, you relished the opportunity to help that organization rise. You mentioned that earlier in this interview with the Buffalo Sabres that it's part of the reason you wanted to be a part of this. You don't seem to me, Mike, like a guy who wants the easy path, who wants to jump on partway through. You kind of want to be in on the ground floor, don't you? Well, it's kind of it's kind of my life. You know, it's been uh, my life journey just, uh, you know, keep fighting for what you want and work hard, outwork other people and find solutions. You know, I think life is full of problems and you've got to be willing to work hard and find the right solutions to it. And you're right. I, I remember that time. And I, I, I joked with friends and family that Darcy traded me to the Islanders as, as a punishment. Um, but I looked at it as a great opportunity. Um, you know, it was a, a lot of new people coming into that organization, Lavulette, a hungry, successful young coach, uh, a lot of new faces, uh, you know, for, for players and stuff. So I, I, I love, like, I, I prefer that over getting traded to a team that's already stacked to win a Stanley Cup. I mean, winning a Stanley Cup would be tremendous, and I wish I could have won one. But, um, you know, to be able to be put in a situation where you need to be part of the solution, you know, I mean, there's, there's no greater thing to be a part of than to be a part of something like that. As you talk about, you know, your journey to this point, to joining the, the Rochester AHL team as an assistant coach, part of that journey, as you mentioned, was working with the Washington Capitals last year as an extension of the coaching staff. And I understand you were doing a lot of work with the taxi squad specifically. And, you know, we've heard some from some from some players around the league who are on the taxi squad and what a difficult experience that was with the COVID protocols, not knowing if or when you were going to get any game action. What was it like for you as a coach working with those players in that unique situation last year? Well, I mean, first and foremost, you just got to tell them what their jobs are. And, it you know, it doesn't entail whining and taking a day off because if, you know, something happens, somebody has a a weird COVID test or whether there's an injury because the schedule was very, uh, very difficult. And we had one of the oldest teams in the league. So if that opportunity is there and they weren't ready, then, you know, shame on them for not putting in the work and staying focused. But, uh, you know, we, I just, you, you find ways to have really hard competitive drills that they're going to still develop their skill. And uh, at the same time, have some fun and get the conditioning in. And you know, it was kind of funny in Washington because there were times where, um, you know, when Tom Wilson was suspended, he was part of our group. Um, you know, he, he didn't want to leave it. He wanted to go back to play and he wanted to back, go back to getting paid. And, uh, but the, the guys, as the season went on, hung out, hung around and, and took part in a lot of the skill stuff we were doing. You know, Jacob Brannon was a healthy scratch there for a bit. Um, and then even when he got back in the lineup, he continued to stay and, and do the, the, the extra work. So, um, you know, I think it's important in any of those scenarios to make sure that, it's an environment that they're getting a lot out of it, but at the same time, don't feel emotionally kind of bogged down by it. And, and part of developing as a player is finding the right role uh, in the NHL, right? And, and so many players, they have a ton of offensive success in junior, but that's not necessarily going to be the role they play in the NHL. You had such a strong identity as a player, as a strong, hardworking two-way center. Of course, you won the Selkie Trophy on two occasions. 
How early in your career did you realize that role was the right fit for you in the NHL? It was hard to tell. Um, I, I never really looked at myself as playing the role, like specifically being a checking center. Um, and I don't know if I ever really got around to considering myself a checking center. I mean, I prided myself in playing 200 feet and, you know, in the last minute and a half, whatever the coach needed, I wanted to be one of the guys on the ice to provide it, whether we needed a goal or to, you know, protect the goal lead. Um, you know, and I think playing for Brian Kilray, you know, I got traded there my NHL draft year and he converted me from a winger to a centerman uh, and then just taught me so much about the position and, and I just relished it. So I think having some of that versatility uh, positionally helped kind of bring a lot of the uh, intangibles to that role together. Um, but you say, I mean, you said it perfectly. I mean, I scored 50 goals in 55 games my last year junior. Um, I get to the NHL and, you know, first year is the 94 lockout in Vancouver. And, you know, I mean, the center depth was incredible that year. So there wasn't going to be a ton of opportunity. And then I get traded to Buffalo and they've got some depth there. So I had to work my way through that. And, you know, my second year, one night, I think it was a couple weeks into the season, Ted Nolan just came to me and said, hey, you're going to play against Peter Forsberg tonight. And I said, okay, I didn't know what that meant. Like, I, I, I didn't consider my, like I said, I didn't consider myself like Essa Tikkanen or, or one of these guys where I'm going to just kind of shadow a guy and, you know, annoy the crap out of him all night. So, you know, we had a good line. My line was, I think, uh, Dixon Ward and Jason Daw that year. And we ended up winning the game. Our line had a lot of success. And, and that was kind of the birth of it. You know, from that point on, we played against the best players on every team and uh, started to relish it. But I noticed as I started to go through that season and then the rest of my career in that role is I didn't – I started to limit the amount of times I took risks offensively because – I knew what my team and my coaches were counting on me and our line for. So, I mean, you just have to learn when to take your chances and when not to, because if you give up chances against the guys we had to play against, um, the puck was in your net. So, you know, that's something I just kind of, that just kind of organically happened. But to your point, to, to start the conversation, it's so important. I think our role, and a lot of it's going to be in conjunction with conversations with the Sabres coaches and managers is, you know, these guys coming in, what do you want them to be? How can we make them the best at what you want them to be? Because everybody wants to be a scorer, but not everybody's going to be a scorer. Um, we've got to find ways to make these players great, off uh, great NHL players as quickly as possible. You're going to play against Peter Forsberg. What, you couldn't find anyone better for me to play against tonight? Uh, pretty easy, you know, pretty I th easy I thought, assignment. I thought, yeah, I thought Joe Sacco would have been tougher, but, uh, you know, For Forsberg was a, a bit of a horse, so it was uh, he, he was always a challenge. Oh, man, offensively, physically, the entire package as well. We don't always take requests, but every once in a while we do. Someone texted in this, so we will end on this note. Can you ask Mike Pekka what he remembers about the Canucks and Sabres brawl back in the day? Oh boy, is that uh, I think that was the night I hit Matthias Olin. Um, you know, I just think I, the one thing I remember of it is uh, um, I remember hitting Jim Dowd earlier in the game um, down in the visiting team right wing corner early in the game, and um, that kind of got it all going. You know, but I at the end of it, you know, in hindsight, I felt bad because I think I stripped Matthias Olin of a Calder Trophy that year uh, that he had to miss uh, the remainder of that regular season. So. Um, but you know what? That's, that's just the way I played. It never mattered uh, who it was inside the jersey of the other team. I was going to play hard and make people pay a price. And, you know, uh, that happens today. Obviously, you're, you're down for, for 10, 15 games. So thank God I played back then. 
It was a much different game. Mike, thank you very much for taking the time today. We wish you success in your new endeavor, and thank you very much. We'll call again. I really appreciate it, guys. Take care. That is Michael Packa, now an assistant coach with the Rochester Americans. I'm not sure if that was the game that our listener was referring to or not. Actually, yeah, I think it, it probably was. Yeah. In 97-98, and there was a big Sean Burke-Steve Shields fight. Like, the goalies went at it during the course of that game as well. I'm surprised nobody mentioned the Mike Packa hit on Timu Solani, which yes. many of our longtime listeners and longtime hockey fans will remember from back in the day as well. Yeah, legendary. One of the legendary hits from the 90s is Pekka on Timu Solani, no doubt. Yeah, and would never be allowed today. And it's not no, a hit that you want in the game not. anymore. But <laughs> absolutely as- not. As he said, maybe I'm lucky I played at that time because he played on that edge and at times would would go over the edge. It was just a different style of hockey way back then. Yeah, it really was. And, uh, you know, you could hear the pride that he took in in playing that way as well. And he said, look, you know, feel a little bad because Matias Olin maybe lost out on a Calder Trophy because of that. But he knew what his game was. He knew how he had to play to have success in the NHL. Interesting points that he made about Buffalo being a blue-collar town. I think most of us understand that already and what the fans ultimately want to see. The venom doesn't seem to be at most of the players these days. It seems to be far above that, the organization and the dysfunction that has occurred there. I also thought it was interesting that he said, you know, maybe in my opinion, Jack Eichel should have been a bit more a part of the solution. He didn't call him out and probably hasn't watched each and every game, but perhaps he thinks that, that Jack Eichel, because of all the losing and the culture that has occurred there, maybe he checked out on part of the process. Well, I think it's a fair comment, right? Anytime you have a player of, of Jack Eichel's caliber, look, hockey is a team sport. It's the ultimate team sport in a lot of ways. It's hard for one player to completely transform a franchise. I understand that, but it's still fair to ask questions about a player like Jack Eichel, who has so much talent and who has so much ability. As you said, I don't, I don't think Michael was you know, calling him out and saying he's been a disaster or anything like that, but uh, there's always going to be scrutiny when, when you have that much talent, and I think it's a fair point. How is that deal not done yet? How is a trade for Jack Eichel not happened as of yet? Because if you're an acquiring team and you're okay with the process, Jamie, I don't know if you listened to the 31 Now 32 Thoughts podcast with Friedman and Merrick where they interviewed the doctor that Eichel and his camp want to perform the procedure. He's he's based in Colorado. Like he he walked everybody through what the procedure would be should they go down that road. And if you're an acquiring team, like, the clock's ticking here. You'd like Jack Eichel to be in your lineup as soon as possible. Yes, it absolutely is. And I understand that the Sabres think they're maybe maximizing their leverage this way when training camp comes around. Maybe play, uh, other teams will be will be desperate to get something done. And, I don't know, maybe they can turn the screws on Jack Eichel a little bit more. I, I don't see how that's going to make a big difference, though. But it does feel like... It sh- it should there should be more imminent chatter about it, right? It's not. It doesn't even seem like we're getting a daily dose of rumors or updates on where trade talks stand. Maybe that's just because the teams are playing it close to the vest. But it doesn't even seem particularly close here. If memory serves, and I listened to that podcast a couple of weeks ago, but if memory serves, the doctor said the timeline of everything went well would be about six weeks from the surgery up until when you could be fully up and running and ready to go for contact you could be doing a lot of stuff before that with the type procedure Eichel opts for but six weeks it's not a lot of time here before the season Jamie no it's not the clock is very very much ticking right you're already pretty much missing a a big chunk of training camp 
uh, and preseason if a deal gets done today or tomorrow and then he's able to immediately have the surgery, right? So if I was a team interested in acquiring Jack Eichel's services, I would want this to get done ASAP. It's Rintoul and Dodd. Keep those texts coming in. We're seeing a lot of them, 650-650-960-960. We will dive back into some of the topics we introduced earlier in this show and some really interesting audio. It was the first time she had spoken at a press conference in a long time. We'll play it for you next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. What was hockey like when you were growing up, Dad? It wasn't like that every night, Jamie, but it was a little different than what we see now. Let's put it that way. It was a little bit different. Yeah, just a little bit. One of our listeners brought up that brawl between the Sabres and Canucks back in the day. Mike Becker was on the other side of the equation at that time after being drafted by the Canucks in the second round. And we asked him about that really good interview. Excellent booking by producer Raja Shergirl here today. He is part of this, as am I, Jamie Dodd, Greg Ballack. He's taking care of business back at Mission Control, as he always is. Your comments are always welcome. 960-960-650-650. A lot to get into, and we have gone across a lot of different sports, and we are going to enter the world of tennis here momentarily, but this is a far bigger conversation than tennis. It's just the launching point for the conversation. Jamie, when Naomi Osaka withdrew from the French Open after saying that she wasn't going to be conducting her media sessions during the French Open and told the world why, that it's because of mental health issues. And there were those who questioned that openly. She hadn't spoken in a press conference format until yesterday. And I know there was a lot of anticipation from people who cover tennis, right? And it was a really delicate situation because for a lot of the reporters, I think there was a, a you know a certain level of understanding and empathy for Naomi Osaka and a, a feeling of okay, you know, we have to approach this differently than just your standard before the Cincinnati event press conference. Here, there has to be a, a certain level of discretion about how we go about this and it it was really it was really interesting how it turned out let's say that way yeah it was it went on for about 16 minutes we're going to play an extended chunk of it for you here nothing close to 16 minutes but i'm going to give you the lead in now the backdrop is what happened at the french open and naomi osaka saying i'm going to focus on the olympics which was played in japan of course that's the country she plays for and there were a lot there was a lot of pressure but Most of you know there is a far different media format. Jamie, you know this. At the Olympics, it's mixed zone. It's not the press conference format. Not everybody has the same rights. Not everybody has the same opportunity that you would on the WTA from week to week, event to event. Yes, it's a a different. As you say, you're not being uh, exposed necessarily the same volume of questions, the same type of questions, all of those things. So this is Naomi Osaka coming back to play in Cincinnati for the first time on the WTA tour. And the first question was about the Olympics and that opportunity and whether or not she had spoken to Simone Biles, who withdrew herself from the all-around competition because she was going through the twisties and she was going through mental health issues as well and decided that it wasn't putting her in a safe and proper spot to compete. The next question was then asked to Naomi Osaka about the press conference format in general and that she has been open about the fact that, hey, press conferences, and especially after losses, maybe not the best way and maybe not right for me and how much anxiety she has with all of that. So it was asked, what could you suggest to us as journalists, as reporters? What could we do differently? And and she gave her answer. After that, 
Paul Doherty of the Cincinnati Inquirer was next on the line, and he got to ask a couple of questions, or at least one that he repeated. You're going to hear that exchange now because it led to what many of you probably saw if you were watching highlights or you were scanning social media, but we will play the exchange in its entirety. Here we go. Thank you. It's Paul Doherty from the Cincinnati Inquirer. Let's follow up on that last question. Um, you're not crazy about dealing with, with, with us, especially in this format, yet you have a lot of outside interests that are, that are served by having a media platform. I guess my question is, how do you balance the two? And, and also, do you have anything you'd like to share with us about what you did say to Simone Biles? Um, when you say I'm not crazy about dealing with you guys, what does that refer to? Well, you've said you, you don't especially like the press conference format. And yet that seems to be the, the obviously the most widely used means of communicating to the media and through the media to the public. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, I would say the occasion, like when to do the press conference is what I feel is the most difficult. But... Sorry, I'm thinking. Um, I think we can move on to the next question, Naomi. Do you want to move on to the next question? Um, no, I'm actually very interested in that like point of view. So if you could repeat that, that'd be awesome. Uh, the question was that you're not especially fond of, uh, of dealing with the media, especially in this format, you have suggested there are better ways to do it that, that we'd like to try to explore that. Uh, my, my question, I guess, was you also have outside interests beyond tennis that, that are served by having uh, the, the platform that the media presents to you. My, uh, my question is how, how are you able, how do you think you might be able to best balance the two? Um. I mean, for me, I feel like this is something that I can't, I can't really speak for everybody. I can only speak for myself. But ever since I was younger, I've had a lot of media interest on me. And I think it's because of my background as well as, you know, how I play. Um, because in the first place, I'm a tennis player. That's why... A lot of people are interested in me. So I would say in that regards, I'm quite different to a lot of people. And I can't really help that there are some things that I tweet or some things that I say that um, kind of create a lot of news articles or things like that. And I know that it's because I've won a couple Grand Slams um, and I've gotten to do a lot of press conferences that these things happen. Um but I would also say, like, I, I'm not really sure how to balance it to. Like, I'm figuring it out at the same time as you are, I would say. So what happens next is the next journalist gets an opportunity to ask the question. And the reason we're not playing what happens next is because it's visual, and many of you may have seen this. But as the next journalist is asking the question, which is prefaced with, I hope it's okay that I ask you a tennis-focused question now. Osaka looks skyward, 
And it turns out she was trying to fight back tears, which eventually came. And at that moment, Jamie, she wasn't able to continue with her press conference. The moderator said, we're going to take a quick break here. She returned after about four minutes and fielded questions and conducted the end of it. The next part of this is her agent comes out and says, the bully at the Cincinnati Enquirer is the epitome of why player media relations are so fraught right now. Everyone on that Zoom will agree that his tone was all wrong and his sole purpose was to intimidate really appalling behavior. And this insinuation that Naomi owes her off-court success to the media is a myth. Don't be so self-indulgent. There's a lot there. And it's a really compelling piece of audio and a really interesting press conference to look at. What angle do you want to hit first, Jamie? Well, the most bewildering part about it to me is the agent's statement afterwards, right? Which I just do not feel accurately reflects what we just listened to, right? Like, was it was it tense and uncomfortable and awkward at some points? Yes, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. But to say that it was bullying, to me, that just doesn't reflect what we heard. So that's kind of number one, is that the agent's response seems to me to be disproportionate to what actually went down in the press conference. And the agent is there to help shield and protect the player. So you understand that tact. I would agree with you on that. Now, at the beginning of the questioning from Doherty, I can understand why that might be interpreted as a different tone. Some might call it a little bit aggressive and perhaps even defensive from a media standpoint of, hey, You rely on the media for your success. I understand why it would be interpreted that way. What I find so compelling about the entire exchange is that she is so thoughtful and she is actually interested in the point of view that the reporter is presenting that when she's given an off-ramp in the middle where they can go on to the next question and avoid the the topic completely, Naomi Osaka actually wants to engage. And she is extremely open with her answer and says in the end, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out how to do this as you guys are watching me try to figure out how to do this. She is really interesting. She's an incredible tennis player. And yet this particular forum causes her a great deal of anxiety. And I want to say, you know, I don't think it was necessarily a perfectly worded question by the reporter. I think what he was trying to get at is, and this was a, you know, kind of a criticism or a complaint brought up a lot when when the Naomi Osaka thing first started breaking at the French Open was, okay, this idea that it's somehow hypocritical for her to not do the media press conferences during the events, but she's involved in a documentary for Netflix or she's involved in these other public media appearances in some way. And I think that's what he was trying to get at is that idea. I mean, if I had a criticism of the question, it's just that if you're trying to, if that's your question, there's a really simple answer, which is, well, it's a lot easier to control the environment in those other media contexts that you're talking about than it is in these press conferences. So it it makes sense to me why one would be more comfortable than the other. But I mean, to your point, Scotty, I think you do have to give Naomi Osaka a lot of credit for not just dismissing the question and not just saying, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. We're moving on, not taking the off ramp. As you say, she actually put some thought in it. And I think it's very commendable for her to say, I recognize there's a dilemma here and I'm still figuring out how to balance it and how to address it. Right. Like that's a, that's something that more public figures should be willing to say is basically, I don't know yet. I'm still figuring it out. So I thought that was a really impressive answer. And 
again, I, I don't want to, you know, sound like I'm completely coming to the defense of the reporter or completely, uh, you know, pillorying him for saying it was a bad question. I thought it was a, a fair question if maybe he had a, a fairly obvious answer as well. But I was... It, it, it was just a fascinating exchange from, from beginning to end, I thought. I agree, because there is a part of her that is compelled to share her views and recognizes that people want to hear her views, and she's almost exploring them in in real time as these questions are being asked. Yes. Like She said, no, actually, I don't want to move on. I want to... I'm interested in exploring that point of view. Can, can you re-ask the question? And yet... The form in which it's happening causes her a great deal of anxiety, and it's a really fair question to be asked earlier in the press conference. We didn't play the audio for you there, but the reporter, I believe from the New York Times, Ben Rothenberg, asked, you know, is there a better way we can do this? Yeah. Press conferences are traditionally the way that athletes have conducted these interviews, but is there a better way? Is there something that would be better for you and perhaps others on tour? For those who care, and this is not me defending Doherty at all, you can have your own point of view on it. That's up to you. Doherty's article on Naomi Osaka is entitled, Naomi Osaka is honest, thoughtful, and can help many other athletes. And he says her answer to his question is the most interesting answer he's ever heard in his 34 years of covering sports in that market. Yeah, and again, that kind of highlights the discrepancy between what the agent had to say afterwards and what actually happened, right? This was not, you know, a a clickbait journalist out there to grab headlines by slamming Naomi Osaka, right? It was, I think, a fair, not necessarily perfectly worded question, but it ended up producing, as you say, a really interesting and thoughtful article that's actually quite sympathetic to, to Naomi Osaka. Lots of people texting in on this. Minor Matt saying, yeah, I don't feel like it was bullying. It was more of the agent washing it. Reg says, I agree that he was trying to ask the question about why media is okay sometimes and not others to her, but I totally disagree in the fact that you don't think it was bullying. He asked it in a way that he was trying to get her to say, oh, I need the media, but she doesn't need the media. The media comes to her, so she uses it. Listen carefully how he says it, and then listen to how she takes it. She was upset by the way he had worded it. That's why she asked for clarification. That's maybe a fair point, Reg, and, and I believe I said earlier this segment that the tone that he comes in with changes through the exchange, and I understand why people would be critical of the tone, though I wouldn't classify it as bullying, but she recognizes that there is perhaps a meaningful discussion to engage in, and she actually wants to participate in it. And I also think that this is something you mentioned earlier in the conversation, Scotty. There is kind of the undercurrent of the reporter maybe trying to come to the media's defense as a whole, which, I, look, I get it. It's it's your profession. It's his profession. It's our profession. I, I understand that instinct, but you don't really need to bring that subtext into the question, right? You kind of just have to ask your question and, and put maybe your thoughts about it and what it means for, for your profession aside. Minor Matt clarified, I read his his text incorrectly. He said he was walshing it, as in Alan Walsh. That's what the agent was doing for <laughs> Naomi Osaka. I understand what you're getting at, Minor Matt. I apologize for my misinterpretation of your text. Corey from Poco, it's a lot better than the scripted responses we get from most professional athletes. I agree, yep. and that's why this is such a conundrum. She's extremely thoughtful. She's extremely interesting, and yet the form in which these answers are produced right now is extremely uncomfortable to her. And I do wonder if maybe, you know, just to 
you know, I've said the agent overreacted, but maybe to try to understand the agent's perspective a little bit here is, you know, she is trying to make sure her client stays in the best headspace possible to perform, to do her job, to, to just be a functioning and, and happy human being, right? So considering the recent history of with Naomi Osaka and the media, I understand maybe you're you're tempted to come out a little bit on the defensive when you think something might be going sideways, right? Just because you want to defend your client. But you're absolutely right. The reason that there's so much fascination around this is she's an extremely interesting person. And you heard her say, I, I understand, you know, if you win a couple grand slams, if you do this in tennis, if you have the background that I do, that creates interest and that makes people want to ask me questions. She's very well aware of why people are so interested and it's you know it's why this issue is not going away anytime soon people are not going to want to stop people aren't going to just decide to stop asking Naomi Osaka questions about things I don't have the solution and I'm not sure anybody has the perfect solution that would suit most people in professional sports most athletes but I'm all I'm here for all of the questioning about hey, are we doing this the right way? Like, just because it's yeah. been done this way forever doesn't mean we should continue down that road. Is there a better way? Is there a better way that people could have a, a friendlier, more congenial conversation? There are going to be tough questions, but is there a better way to do that with athletes? I'm, I'm here for examining the process. Well, and we've all heard the complaints from viewers and fans and listeners about, you know, the completely perfunctory walk-off interviews in a hockey game where all you hear is the same cliches over and over again. And it kind of falls into that same dilemma for me where there's obviously a demand to learn more about athletes, hear their perspective, but are the current formats that we use, the traditional formats, are they always the best way to actually get that perspective? I think it's a similar discussion that's being had in the world of tennis right now. Are these kind of impersonal, en masse press conferences? Yeah, Naomi Osaka has lots of interesting things to say. Are we going to get to hear them in that context necessarily? Big news coming our way as our first three hours together in two markets is coming to a close. An hour more to go in the show, but we'll turn you over to local programming in Calgary here in just a few minutes' time. Justin Dunk reporting that Bo Levi Mitchell has been diagnosed with a broken leg and placed on the six-game injured list. That is not good news for Calgary Stampeders fans. Maybe it's good news for Michael O'Connor, who could get a run here, depending on how he fares this Friday. He's the expected starter for the Stamps, but that is big news in the Canadian Football League coming out of Calgary this morning. Big news for the Calgary Stampeders. I do find it, I don't want to make light of anyone's injury situation, but I do find the idea of a, a somewhat delayed diagnosis of a broken leg kind of odd. <laughs> you know, usually I think of it as either broken or not, but for whatever reason, it took a few days here. But we do have confirmation, as we had speculated, as we'd heard from reporters earlier in the week, that he's going to be on the shelf for, you know, at least six or up to six games here. Uh, and that means a big opportunity for Michael O'Connor, the Canadian, as we talked about yesterday. Well, and as you know, Jamie, like you can have a fracture and it can be called yeah, a I broken know, leg. And, and you and I both know the exact same thing here. And, and some of it is in the language. Like if if it was hairline fracture in the yeah. tibia, people would go, okay, I understand why they didn't detect it. And he thought he could play through it. And now that they've done some some MRIs and they've gotten in there a little bit more. Now we see what the real problem was. And if it was a compound fracture, I would suggest that we wouldn't have seen Bo Levi Mitchell out there. Yeah, they probably would have found that one right away. Oh, I, I know I know what's going on here. You have a broken leg. So that's tough news for the Stamps. We talked about Michael O'Connor yesterday, though. He's expected to be the starter Friday against Montreal. Canadian quarterback getting a big opportunity here. And 
again, if he performs adequately or if he performs well, maybe he gets the ball and gets a chance to run with it for a little bit. Well, it certainly seems like he's going to have that chance. And it's just another, you know, we've talked about it already, Calgary being down 0-2 to start the season. Not a position they are used to being in. And now all of a sudden you have Bo Levi Mitchell, their star, on the shelf for an extended period. It's interesting because it's a, in some ways it's a really great opportunity for Michael O'Connor, but it also comes with a big burden of pressure to turn the season around for the Stampeders. Oh, no question about it. No question about it. There's somewhat of a an excuse now, if you want to call it that, yep. as a fan go, well, we lost our number one quarterback. What are we supposed to do here? And it's it's even more magnified because of the sprint of a season that it is. Normally an 18-game schedule has been crunched down to 14 this year, and the West has a couple of teams that are off to 2-0 starts already, and Calgary's on the other side. Yeah, so it puts it heaps that much more pressure that, as you say, if you don't want to be just satisfied with the excuse of, well, we lost our first-string quarterback – you got to start winning games in a hurry here, and you're going to have to do it with your backup. I imagine that will be a big part of the conversation on the other side of the Rockies over the course of the next hour and this afternoon. We will turn you over there. Jamie and I will continue on here in Vancouver, revisit a couple of topics that we found interesting, and our listeners were all over earlier in the show as well, and where the Vancouver Canucks fit into that mix. We'll explain next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie Dodd in for this final hour. He's in all week, in fact. Karen Sermon enjoying a well-earned vacation. I'm Scott Rentoul. Thanks for joining us here. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. You've been contributing all morning. We don't expect that to stop as we turn from a.m. to p.m. here. Not a lot of people jumped in on this, but we'll see. We'll gauge throughout the course of this hour, Jamie, where people are at with the thought of, ads on NHL jerseys. It's not coming into an arena near you this season, but it will be coming the season after. And as you would expect, a couple of the early commenters were not thrilled with the addition of some sort of advertising on an NHL sweater. Yeah, and from the comments I saw, they fall in line with what I'm thinking as well, which is kind of resignation, right? Yeah, okay, I'm not crazy about it. It's not something I'm excited about. But it's also not devastating. I'm not outraged about it. It's just, yep, yeah, this is going to happen. They need money. This is a source of money. All right, fair enough. Well, the word that needs to come up is tasteful. Can it be done in a tasteful manner? Yep. I believe it can. Has it? I mean, there's so many different NBA jerseys now. I have more issue with that, that sometimes I, I turn on the television. I'm fine with <laughs> yeah. having a third jersey or maybe even a retro jersey that you're working in and have four different jerseys that you're working but when I turn on the television I have no idea which teams are playing because it's difficult to identify the different jerseys and there's about 11 of them for each team I have more issue with that than I do with saying okay we can do a tasteful advertising patch on your jersey your your uniform wherever it happens to be yeah and my understanding in the NBA is that let's say you know you want to buy a jersey of your favorite team you want to give one to your kid whatever it is you have the option of getting one without that extra ad on it and that that's really important to me it would be it would be upsetting to me if you were also forcing you know any fan that wants to support their favorite team's gear to carry that corporate logo as well that would be a little tough but if the NHL gives at least the option to say hey buy a jersey we're not going to put that shoulder ad patch on it I think that's important for me as well. Visually speaking, I'm not really looking forward to seeing a bright red Rogers logo on a blue and green Canucks jersey. That's from Alistair in Clearwater. Well, there's no there's no imminent sponsorship from Rogers that might be rolled into the deal. The 
radio and television rights happen to be there, but and obviously the building sponsorship, but that doesn't mean that Rogers would be the presenting sponsor on a jersey. I mean, I, I'm obviously extremely excited about that possibility. I take everything bad I said about jersey sponsorships back, Scotty. Let's go. Let's get that Rogers ad on there. Good answer. Very good answer. <laughs> I would never buy a jersey with an ad unless they do it low-key like the NBA. Well, that's the idea. And in the report yeah. that came out in Sportico today, the size of whatever patch would be put on there for whatever advertising company, or for whatever company, pardon me, wanted to advertise, it's three inches by three and a half is the maximum allowed. doesn't mean you have to use up all of that space, but it is very similar. It's slightly larger, but very similar to what is done in the NBA. Yeah, so it's not going to be overwhelming. This is not going to be, you know, European hockey all of a sudden, or even European soccer or MLS for that matter, where the corporate logo is kind of the main logo on the jersey. We're not going to see that. It's going to be on the shoulder. It sounds like a little bigger than the NBA, but hopefully not too intrusive. And, you know, we kind of had a preview of this discussion going into last season uh, with the news that there's going to be ads on helmets. And for that one, I mean, I didn't really care at all. It's the helmet. Who cares? It's not like there's all this emotion and nostalgia tied in with the helmet for certain teams. And if you are a little concerned about this, I mean, I would say look at how much the helmet ads affected your enjoyment of watching the games. I would say nobody cared, really. I mean, it was not something that annoyed a lot of people when it was actually happening during the games. Yeah, jerseys are a little bit different, but I still think this will be at least, you know, as you say, tasteful, unobtrusive enough not to be that much of a big deal. I don't know, Jamie. I didn't see a lot of people buying helmets last season. That's true. Helmet, must, helmet sales plummeted. Yeah, yeah that must be the reason. <laughs> that must be the reason. It's Scott Rental and Jamie Dodd. You can weigh in on that or perhaps a topic we're going to reintroduce. We brought it up off the top of the show today. We had Mike Pekka on earlier. Really good interview. For anybody who missed it, check out the podcast once it's uploaded, sportsnet.ca slash 650. We went a bunch of different directions with him, and he was a really thoughtful and excellent interview. We got a lot of comments coming in in that regard. And we talked a little Sabres off the top of the show because Don Granato is on a podcast that's out there right now, the Cam and Strick podcast. Cam Jansen and Andy Strickland do that weekly. And Don Granato, to me, is a really interesting interview, and he's a really interesting hire. It got me thinking, and it got us thinking about the toughest jobs in the NHL this season. I don't think Don Granato has it because there are lowered expectations in that market for what they're going to expect as they reset and rebuild once again in Buffalo. I think he's got a little bit of time. I'm wondering where Canucks fans see Travis Green in the mix for toughest job in the NHL this season. Should he be under consideration for that, Jamie? It's a fascinating question because I think you could look at it two ways, right? On the one hand, I think this is a much more talented roster than probably he's ever had to work with and certainly than he had to work with last year. And I know there's major questions on the blue line. I share those questions, but just the strength of the forward group is enough for me to say, you know, this is going to be the most talented roster that Travis Green has had to work with. So so in that, in that sense, you could say, well, his job's actually got a lot easier because he has so much more talent to work with. He has the flexibility, as we saw, as we talked about with Harmon Dial on the show yesterday. He has the flexibility to move guys around the lineup in certain cases, which he didn't always have last year. But as we had this discussion earlier in the show, Scotty, about Jeremy Calton in Chicago, anytime you're the coach and the roster goes through a significant upgrade, that brings extra expectations. That brings extra pressure. And just with the overall context of the front office for this franchise, 
look, you could say this about a lot of seasons recently for the Canucks, but there is a ton of pressure for this team to dramatically improve. Not just take a small step forward from the disaster of last year, but to take major, major steps forward. And realistically, the pressure is on to make the playoffs. So from that perspective, yeah, Travis Green has a lot more talent to work with, but if they stumble out of the gates, it's very easy to imagine a situation where, hey, listen, it's the middle of December and we are X number of points out of a playoff position. We have to make a coaching change. So, yeah, I think you could put Travis Green in the category of coaches who have the toughest job in the NHL this year. I put him on my short list. I considered Travis Green. I ultimately didn't select him for my answer. But for all of the reasons you mentioned, being in an intense hockey market, and hockey market, and here's the other part, Jamie, when – when the clock starts running in the NHL, fair or not, that's the way this league operates. Ah, what's the easiest thing to change? We'll change the coach, and it's worked before, and look at Craig yep. Ruby. Like, that's something you can do. Whether that is fair or not, that's often how this league operates. There's a lot of pressure in Vancouver. Jim Benning's on the record as saying, we expect to be a playoff team this year. Jason Dickinson, fresh off his newly signed contract, came on this station yesterday, and he told the People's Show, Hey, I've talked to the coaches. I've talked to the management. Like, we're all in. This isn't a team that's going to try to find its way. We expect to be a playoff team this season. And with that comes some form of pressure. And really, you know, let's say that doesn't materialize, right? And it's midway through the season and they're not on track to make the playoffs. Really, the question becomes, okay, is it Travis Green who suffers the consequences first? Or is it Jim Benning? Or is it both at the same time? Or do they wait to the end of the season and make the moves then, right? That's that's what the question becomes. Because if they don't make the playoffs, and especially if it goes off the rails early in the season, there's no doubt, to me at least, that there's going to be changes. It's just a question of what order do they come in? And is Travis Green at the front of the line to kind of pay the price for not living up to expectations? He's not at the front of the line when I made my selection. I had Sheldon Keefe there. People who've been listening to the program from, from the onset, they know that. I put Keefe there for a bunch of different reasons. He's got a team that's not just expected to make the playoffs. It's expected to do something in the playoffs, and it's had this history of failure, and it's got an ultra-talented roster, and it's in the hockey hotbed of Toronto. And there are a lot of people in that market, Jamie, that felt more changes should have been made already with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Not saying the head coach was the target of much of that criticism, but the fact that they're going to run it back – brings with it a heaping amount of pressure. Well, and it is interesting, too, because, as you know, there's always stylistic criticisms about this version of the Leafs, right? They're too focused on skill. They don't have enough grit down the lineup. They tried to address that in different ways, right? Bringing in Wayne Simmons. They made the trade for Nick Foligno if it didn't work out at the deadline. But there's always this sense that, you know, the Kyle Dubas and Sheldon Keith model can't be successful in the playoffs. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, but it's a school of thought that exists in the market and exists in portions of the media in Toronto. So that's just another layer of pressure for Sheldon Keith, right? It's not just your performance as a coach. In some ways, it's your whole philosophy as a coach. It's the general manager's philosophy that are under pressure to perform and deliver in Toronto this year. Yeah, no question. There's a lot of people under pressure. We limited this to coaching, but Kyle Dubas would certainly be at at or near the top of the pressure power rankings for NHL general managers. I told you I considered Green, Jeremy Colleton, Sheldon Keefe ultimately was my choice. I'll tell you the other guy I considered, Alain Vigneault. Tough hockey mm. market, terribly disappointing season, toughest division in hockey, and an expectation in Philly with some changes there that they'd better get this thing on the right track in a hurry. And Alain Vigneault, with his track record, is the kind of guy you, know, you bring in 
to be part of a winning team, right? It, it's similar to Daryl Sutter in Calgary, right? You don't hire AV and then try to tear things down and be non-competitive for a certain amount of time, right? If he's your coach, you're expecting to be a competitive player potentially even Stanley Cup contending teams soon, right? So that's a good one. They made a lot of different changes in the offseason, you know, bringing in Ryan Ellis, Rasmus, Mr. Rasmus Ristolainen, who a lot of people, including myself, have major questions about. Can AV find a way to get more out of him on a more consistent basis? That's a good nomination for sure. We've had a lot of people commenting on the jersey ads. A couple in this vein. I would never buy a jersey with an ad unless they do it low-key like the NBA. I read that one already in Mike and Victoria echoed that saying i won't buy a jersey that has advertising on it sorry i'm out once the ads are there says another texture i won't purchase another sweater someone saying i'm okay with ads on jersey as long as it stays on the game warren jersey leave the jerseys yep. for retail sales you mentioned that as it is trucker james different thought on this saying i'm okay with the advertisements on jerseys as long as it doesn't get out of control and end up looking like those euro league jerseys yeah, and that's a major concern for a lot of people that we've heard whenever this comes up. And I agree. I mean, they look kind of silly, and I understand it's different context. And, you know, in European soccer, it's much more accepted to have ads on your jersey, so that makes it easier. But, ah, man, I, I don't. I hope this isn't the start of a slippery slope to ending up there. I don't think it is. I think, at least for the foreseeable future, it's going to be just this one ad on the shoulder that's relatively small because I completely agree. Those things are hard to look at. And it really makes identifying with your team, I think, a lot more difficult, at least for me. Another topic I wanted to revisit because we had a lot of comments on this, Jamie, at 650-650, and you're free to jump in on this as well. We didn't have time to get to them all, and I want to find them. I want to talk about them. We talked about that overnight success story or perhaps that overlooked story and the example we used was Nick Nurse here's a guy who was a Toronto Raptors assistant for what five years six years and didn't really get a whole bunch of run he was just another assistant coach and he wasn't looked at as the next great NBA head coach he was never billed that way and there are a lot of coaches Jamie that go through that in their career and and like Don Granato talked about, it's tough to get an interview because you don't have the experience, yeah. and then all of a sudden you fall through the cracks, and hey, you have a nice career in the league, but you bounce around as an assistant, and nobody ever tabs you for an opportunity as a head coach. Well, Nick Nertz gets his opportunity after turning 50, and boy, does he make the most of it. And he's now viewed in a completely different light. So we introduced the topic of either coaches or athletes who were overlooked somewhat late bloomers and it made you say well how did this person not get an opportunity a little bit early so if you want to text in on that get in on that conversation as well 650 650 you and i brought up some earlier in the show from football kurt warner someone texted in cam wake you brought up some other examples as well in in your mind jamie yeah, I mean, I I think Tom Brady kind of has to fall into that category, right? And I understand, as I said earlier in the show, you know, the difference between him and Kurt Warner is he wasn't viewed as an elite quarterback right away, but still just the story of going from a completely unheralded, unheralded sixth-round pick to winning the Super Bowl and then establishing that dynasty in New England. I think he has to qualify for this conversation. Uh, we have Rager texting in, and this is... Uh, in, in retribution, although you're a little late, Rager, sorry, because we're not on in Calgary anymore. But earlier in the show, a Calgary listener had texted in Tim Thomas, and they had included the note that they were doing it specifically to tweak Canucks fans in Vancouver. Rager texts in, just to get back at the Calgary listeners for the Tim Thomas shout, another player I would go with is the Bulin Wall, Nikolai Habibulin. 
And the interesting thing is, I mean, there's a few Calgary players that you could nominate for this one, right? Martin Saint-Louis is there. I mean, Mika Kippersoff, it happened in Calgary, so that's a happy side of the story for them. But Rager's throwing Nikolai Habibulin in there, too. Yeah, Habibulin and goalies probably have a lot of nominations here because it's so yeah. difficult to evaluate. And some of the most heralded goalies who have come along, I think of a guy because we're talking Flames specifically, that they drafted Trevor Kidd. That never really panned out into what it was supposed to. And then you get these other goaltenders who rise up and you say, how how did people miss on this guy? This guy's fantastic now. And there are so many stories like that. Tim Thomas, I know Canucks fans don't want to hear that, but he's certainly one of those guys. This one comes in from the world of baseball, Jamie. Uh, The the other I was going to throw in there as well is someone texted in, um, with the Flames specifically saying, I'm sur- sure someone has said Mark Giordano from Calgary. Yeah, he was never regarded the yeah. way he is now, and he was a late bloomer. Yeah, that's another excellent example, right? And I think we talked about this even yesterday on the show, you know, going over to the KHL at one point in his career because he didn't think he was getting what he was worth and getting the opportunities in the NHL, and then ultimately late in his career winning the Vesna. Someone texted in Brett Hull. Not sure I agree with that, simply because when you've got that name on your back, given what his father did, there is always expectation and pressure on you. And while Hull was certainly not fleet of foot, he was a scorer in his younger days. Yeah, that's you, you make a good point as well about carrying the expectations of the family name there. And, you know, he was a prolific player at the junior level as well. So I'm not quite sure I would put Brett Hull in there. We mentioned Marty St. Louis, Tim Thomas. You know a guy, and and this to me is era-dependent and how we look at it now. Because we see 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds make such incredible impacts now, it's easy to forget that that's not the route most people took. So I'm going to throw a couple names your way. You tell me whether they qualify or not because these guys didn't hit their stride until their mid-20s. Going way back, Adam Oates. We're talking about a later pick, a guy who didn't establish himself as one of the best passers in the game until mid to late 20s when he and Brett Hull got together and things were going pretty well in St. Louis. And the other guy I'd throw in there, and again, he went the college route and broke in just on the outer edge of that era where you had to marinate a little longer. Joe Pavelski was never looked at as a surefire. He's a seventh-round guy. Yeah, I wonder about Pavelski. Did he kind of reach the heights to be included in this conversation? Because, you know, we've seen... I don't want to, you know, disrespect Joe Pavelski's career. He's had a fantastic career. I understand that. But I'm also not sure you would ever put him in the, you know, top 15 player in the NHL conversation or anything like that, which a lot of these other guys that we're talking about ended up being among the very best in their league or certainly at their position. Adam Oates is a good one, though, for sure. A guy who was not heralded at all and then ends up, you know, not only being one of the best passers in the game at his peak, he ends up with more than 1,400 points in his career. Played forever, was always very productive, even to, even until very, very late in his career. So I think Adam Oates counts for sure. We had someone submit the name Alex Burroughs. Does he qualify for this? Did he reach high enough heights? Is the, are, are the depths that he had to come from deep enough that yeah. even though he wasn't like the best scorer in the game or an all-star, does Alex Burroughs qualify? Well, the thing with Alex Burroughs that's interesting is I don't know that he has the overnight part of it, right? Because he did have to scrap and claw uh, even once he made the NHL. You know, if, if Alex Burroughs had been called up to the NHL and then a month later he gets put with the Sedins and goes on that scoring tear with them, then yeah, I think we're having, we're including him in this conversation. But 
you know, as you remember, he got called up first as a fourth liner, an energy guy, a guy who could kill penalties. He spent he spent a long time in the lineup in that role and just slowly worked his way into more and more responsibilities. Okay, now you're on the third line with Ryan Kessler. You're asked to do a little bit more offensively and then finally getting that shot with the Sedins that, you know, completely changed the course of his career. So, it's a, look, I was a huge Alex Burroughs fan when he was playing for the Canucks. I loved the guy. I loved his story. I loved him as a player. But I don't think it quite, because there's that element of steady progression along the way, it's a little different than the overnight success stories we're talking about. And let's not get our stats confused here. Someone texting in immediately saying, yes, Alex Burroughs, 100%, four straight 30-goal seasons, 20-goal seasons. He had one 30-plus yeah. season. He did not score with that type of efficiency. Very good player. I'm not trying to denigrate him in any manner, no, but let's, no. let, let's just keep the facts to the facts here. Facts only, as the people show yes, likes to indeed. say. Someone asked about Rick Bonus. That was Capitol Hill Ron. Rick Bonus is an interesting one because he had the early opportunity, Jamie. He was the first coach of the Ottawa Senators. It didn't work out. He was with those expansion teams of the past, and we all know what kind of hand they were dealt. And then it took him forever to get another opportunity. Do second chancers qualify if it takes them that long? I think second chancers do qualify, but I don't know that Rick Bonus does, right? Because, again, look, he was an incredible sentimental story taking that that uh, Dallas Stars team to the Stanley Cup. And he's, you know, he's such a great guy that it's so easy to root for him and so easy to cheer for Rick Bonus and be happy about his story. But would you call him, you know, a top five coach in the NHL? I'm not sure you would. And that's, again, not no disrespect to Rick Bonus. That's a really hard group to crack. But that's kind of what we're talking about here, right, is guys who have had that level of success. So I do think there are second week that could fall into this category. I'm not sure Rick Bonus quite does, though. Yeah, I agree. Top five guy in the NHL? He might qualify yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like he, he might be on the podium, in fact. He's that good of, of a dude. But I think your point is well made about his coaching prowess, and, and we'll see where it goes in the next couple of years. Maybe we will regard Rick Bonus yep. a little bit differently. Someone suggested Dominic Hashik. It's a good one. It was obviously a different time when Hashik was making his way over to the NHL. We were just starting to have European players accepted on a more regular basis. He goes to a Chicago Blackhawks team that at the time has Ed Belfour, as its as its goaltender, and and he was a very well established goalie at that time. But I think he qualifies. He turns out to be arguably the greatest goalie of all time on skill level for for some in the goaltending fraternity. Well, I think I think he definitely qualifies. I mean, first of all, you know, anytime you're talking about a, a tenth round pick, right? That's pretty unheralded. And I, I understand things were different, as you say. It wasn't as easy to scout. Certainly not goalies that are playing in the Czech Republic. So it was easy for a guy like Dominic Hasek to fall through the fall through the cracks. But even beyond that, you know, he was drafted in 1983, and he didn't really get his full his first shot at being a full time starter until the 93-94 season. That's a lag of 10 years. That's the part that really qualifies it for me, right? Is, you know, we talk about paying your dues. It's usually not 10 years before you get a shot in the league to be a starter. He was in the league before that. But as I say, to really be the number one guy. And then, yeah, instantly, he's winning Vesnas. He's dominant. He's taking a team to the Stanley Cup Finals. He goes on to win Cups later in his career, right? So I think just because of the path he took to the NHL, yeah, Dominic Hasek falls into this category. Good one came in just now unsigned. Pavel Datsuk, no question. Yep. Un unknown 
playing in Siberia, and the next thing you know, he is a star in the National Hockey League. And someone earlier in the program texted in Henrik Zetterberg as well. I think that's an, another excellent selection. Yeah, and both of those guys again reached you know the very very pinnacle of, of the of the pyramid, right? Not just winning Stanley Cups, but Pavel Datsuk, one of the top forwards in the game for a long stretch. And again, as you say, from playing in Siberia, from nobody knowing who he was, starring on you know in in his first season uh, on those deep veteran laden Detroit Red Wings teams, and then kind of making the transition to being the best player on those later Cup contending teams. Yeah, he falls into this for sure. Yeah, and maybe we're splitting hairs and making this pretty specific, but we had Marcus Naslin's name come up again, and we weren't talking second-chance guys as far as the NHL goes. That was more on the coaching train because it didn't hit immediately for Rick Bonus the same way it might not have hit for, I don't know, say a Bruce Cassidy right away or a Mike Sullivan who everybody had said, well, there's a career assistant, and then Mike Sullivan gets another opportunity in Pittsburgh, and he's viewed as entirely differently. Marcus Nazan doesn't qualify for what we're talking about because we're talking about people who were unheralded, overlooked, and then all of a sudden, how did they miss on this guy? Marcus Nazan was a first-round draft pick. Marcus Nazan was expected to produce. The surprise was that Marcus Nazan didn't have more success with the Pittsburgh Penguins as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And and basing it again partly on draft status. Yep. Would you put Tony Romo in this category? Now, he was never considered, you know, the best quarterback in the NFL, probably not even ever a top 5 quarterback. I know he never won, you know, the Super Bowl, never won the big one for Dallas, but still the first chance, he, you know, an undrafted guy spends a couple years on Dallas's on Dallas's squad as the backup, and then the first chance he gets as the starter, goes to the Pro Bowl that year. Goes to the Pro Bowl the next year as well and I would just say, given how hard it is to have success as an undrafted quarterback in the NFL, yeah, Tony Romo was never truly elite, but he was extremely productive, and I might throw him in that category. Yeah, I think it's a good one. I would put him on that list. I, it's one I didn't think of, and I think your argument is a very sound one. Rich Gannon, what about him for long, long NFL fans back? And they, Rich Gannon didn't start for, I believe, his first five seasons, not in a regular fast he ends up becoming an mvp in the league there's a guy who hit late yeah and really late in his career too right you know i think he goes goes to his first pro ball just bringing up his uh, football reference page here goes to his first pro ball at 34 right so that's a long time that's what a lot of guys careers are winding down or they're out of the league has arguably his best season uh, at 37 a little bit after that throws for almost 5,000 yards at 37 so yeah he qualifies as a late bloomer and sometimes that draft status depends on which league you're drafted in because first-round picks from league to league, we don't view them quite the same. The NBA nope. is a pretty good example. Like, if, if you're picked in the first round of the NBA, it, it means something, but it doesn't mean what it does in other leagues. So, Steve Nash, you tell me, does he qualify or not? Steve Nash is fascinating because he was a really good player in Dallas, and so it's not as if he came out of nowhere. I mean, Phoenix went out and made this big splashy signing to bring him to the Suns, right? They were investing a lot of him, a lot in him as a free agent. He had already been an all-star in Dallas. So it's not exactly an overnight success, but the jump and the level up going from Dallas to Phoenix is enormous. And that's almost an entirely separate conversation, right? The guys who midway through their career just hit this completely other unexpected level. And the Steve Nash story is so fascinating because, you know, part of it is, 
Of course, his talent, part of it is the perfect mesh between him and Mike D'Antoni there uh, in Phoenix. So I I wouldn't call him an overnight success because he already was a a huge success in Dallas in a lot of respects. But it's undeniable that, I mean, nobody expected him to be a back-to-back MVP when Phoenix signed that deal. Well, and that's after he gets drafted by Phoenix. He's behind Kevin Johnson in that backcourt. He's 15th overall, but they don't see enough to keep Steve Nash. He ends up going to Dallas and... A lot of people will forget that in his first season, he was a disappointment. He was playing hurt, and he wasn't producing the way they thought he should, and and he was getting booed a little bit with the Dallas Mavericks, and there was an opportunity for teams to get him out of there if they wanted to, and it was that fourth season he and Nowitzki really got going, and, and you're right, then hit another level back in Phoenix. What about Kyle Lowry, 24th overall pick, but a guy who didn't really hit it until late? Yeah, needed the environment of of the Raptors, needed for them to invest in him, to to give him the opportunity, you know, uh, as the starter, moving Jose Calderon out. I don't know if I would put Kyle Lowry in this, right? Because, again, great player, don't get me wrong, but was he ever truly elite in in the lexicon and the, the context of the NBA? I'm not sure that he was. And, again, it has a certain element of that steady progression to me, similar to an Alex Burroughs, right, where... He didn't come out of nowhere. He was working his way up to it and then hit this really impressive level. But that's different to me than a guy who just comes out of nowhere and all of a sudden is this absolute phenom. Keep those submissions coming in. The guy we're going to talk about next, he didn't come out of nowhere. And maybe that's the problem, at least according to some. We'll explain on the other side. It's Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Well, they're doing it in Toronto. And I imagine it's going to come to British Columbia in fairly short order. The question is, will it be exactly the same or tweaked slightly? It's Scott Rental and Jamie Dodd finishing up our Tuesday program. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Jamie, MLSE has announced new venue health and safety protocols that will go into effect next month. You either need to be fully vaccinated or produce a negative COVID test to enter one of the venues to watch a sporting event or another large capacity gathering. And it's big news. We're, you know, we've already seen this with the Winnipeg Jets. Now MLSE, of course, parent company of both the Maple Leafs and the Raptors. So that's two other major sporting teams in this country that are going to take these measures. I will say it's interesting. It's not just proof of vaccination. They also allow the Mm -hmm. possibility of a negative COVID-19 test. I'm not smart enough to understand how the logistics of all of that work, but I'm assuming that they have some sort of easy, practical way to accomplish that. But it's look, we're going to see this in in more places than not across this country. And one thing that I thought was interesting about MLSC's statement is You know, they cited the health and safety of their patrons and the fans and their staff, but they also said, you know, we have a role to play in avoiding further government restrictions here. And I thought that was really interesting because, yeah, they want to stay in business. They want to keep being allowed to have fans come to the games and spend money, right? And one of the biggest threats to that is if case counts get out of control again and the government feels the need to step in and put in certain restrictions. And you know, as a place where a lot of different people are gathering, we've seen in the past that has the potential to be, you know, a so-called super spreader event. So I thought it was interesting that they were kind of recognizing their role and stepping up and say, hey, we're actually doing this to make sure that there aren't further lockdowns or further restrictions put in place in the future to do our part, at least to help that. 
Yeah, and you can come at this from the ethical lens or the cynical lens, whatever you want, but this is business at the end of the day. And the WHL, for example, yesterday saying there's a mandatory vaccine policy for players, for hockey ops, for team personnel. We're also recommending that players only stay at billet homes that have fully vaccinated individuals of those that are eligible in the household. We can talk whether that's ethics or business, but ultimately, look. Look at how much damage economically has been caused and opportunity-wise in the case of of junior hockey. We are not willing to go through that again without taking every proper safety and health procedure possible. Hey, we all know, and we everybody listening should know by now, you can be fully vaccinated and you can still get COVID-19 and with the different variants that are going on around this planet. But the consequences of that are different for those who contracted afterwards. And again, from a business standpoint, that is taking every precaution necessary. So I understand why teams and leagues are going down that road right now. Yeah, and again, it is all about the business side of things, really. I mean, I, I don't want to be completely cynical about it, but as I said, MLSC is pretty much directly saying, hey, listen, we don't want to get shut down again here. We want to keep our doors open to paying customers as long as we can. And the best way, the best thing that we can do to accomplish that is to institute these measures. Same thing with the WHL, right? We don't want to have to put our players through another shutdown. And I do think with the WHL, it's important to note that obviously they're dealing at least partially with players who aren't adults yet. So they, I think that changes the calculation for them and is why that's part of the reason why they have the the strongest policy so far, right? Is they have an extra responsibility, I think, to look after the health and safety of some of their players. But ultimately what it comes down to is if you want to stay functional, if you want to stay in business operating without disruption this season, this is the best way to accomplish it. Then don't shut things down over a cold. Pretty simple. That text brought to you by someone who has either not done enough information gathering or has not had someone close to them suffer the ill, uh, the uh, adverse effects of COVID-19. If that's still your belief, do some reading. That would be my yeah. suggestion there. And look, we talked a lot about what the NFL did and said, here are the measures that are in place, and here are the punishments if you don't comply with vaccination. They couldn't do mandatory vaccinations in the NFL, and this will be the case in the NHL as well, because you need compliance from the Players Association in those leagues. But what they did do in the NFL is say, okay, we can't make it mandatory. What we can do is make it punitive if you choose not to get vaccinated and we have an outbreak that causes our business to shut down. And look at the teams that are starting to fall in line. Atlanta announced yesterday, hey, I don't think they're going to finish first in a lot of things this season in the NFL, Jamie, but Atlanta is the first team to have 100% of its players vaccinated. And apparently, according to reports yesterday, there are a couple of teams that are going to get there in fairly short order. They're getting close. Yeah, we've heard certainly that Seattle has been up in kind of the high 90s at different stages. So we'll see maybe if they're able to get to 100 at some point soon. And it's great to see. And I also just enjoyed, you know, the the discussion around vaccination rates is so different south of the border that I think it would have been easy for Atlanta to kind of shy away from that almost in a way. But no, they came out and they were really proud about it. They said, this is a great accomplishment for us and we wanted to share it and they wanted to set an example. So I was really happy to see that. Uh, from the Falcons yesterday as well. We'll see if other NFL teams follow suit with the Vegas Raiders. What they did yesterday, they said you have to be fully vaccinated in order to attend games in Vegas this season. And if you are fully vaccinated, 
you don't have to wear a mask. They have a mask mandate right now, but they've worked this with health officials there that if everybody who comes in is fully vaccinated, they won't have to wear a mask. And the way they're doubling down on this, Jamie, is for those who aren't vaccinated, they are going to have vaccination clinics at Allegiant Stadium. You can roll up. You can get vaccinated. You'll be required to wear a mask for that game at which you received your second part of the vaccination. But two weeks after that, you would be able to attend a Raiders game like the rest of the unmasked, fully vaccinated population. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I understand the BC Lions are going to be running a, a pop-up vaccination clinic outside of their game uh, when they return home at the later in this week. So I think that's a really cool initiative that some teams are getting in on. And it's it's a good way to kind of pair the maybe more restrictive policy, but also saying, look, we're going to do everything we can to help you out here to make it easy to get. We're going to do our part that way as well, rather than just setting the restrictions. And, you know, we, as you said, Scotty, we've talked a lot about the, the uh, restrictions the NFL has put on its players and, you know, they can't mandate it, but they can make it, they can make life very difficult if you choose not to get it. It's going to be really fascinating, at least for me to see how the NHL handles that same issue as well. And, With the NHL, of course, you have the issue of cross-border travel, right? And we've already heard reporting from Elliot Friedman that, hey, if you're not allowed into Canada because you've chosen not to get the vaccine, you might not get paid for those games. Your your team might have to pay a price because you're not uh, able to go on those trips with them. And the the issue of cross-border travel, it just provides the NHL with another pressure point to kind of lean on the players, right? Because that's a frequent and common part of an NHL season. And if that's going to be an issue, it's going to make life really difficult for people who are holdouts. No question about it. And we're going to see the first sporting event mass gathering on Thursday here. And I don't know what the number is going to be. I know 12,500 people are allowed to go to the BC Lions Edmonton Elks game. That's going to go down 730 BC place on Thursday night. So that's a capacity issue right now. And that's the first measure, but you know, the lions and the white caps and the Canucks are in conversations right now with the government saying, okay, how can we get this to as full capacity as possible? What measures can we take to get the most people possible into our venue? And you got to think one of the things the government's going to say is vaccination requirement, right? (laughs) It's going to be one of the number one items. You want the most people possible? Institute these policies that other sporting teams across the country are doing, MLSE being the latest. Touche, Wayne in Harewood, who says most Raiders fans already wear masks to those games. (laughs) That's a good point. That's a really good point that gets brought up. There are a couple of football stories I wanted to work in here today, not the least of which is from a BC Alliance and Canadian Football League standpoint, Calgary's quarterback's out for a while. Bo Levi Mitchell, it was described as a broken leg by Justin Dunk. I don't know how bad the fracture is, but he's on the six-game injured list, and that feels to me like a James Paxton with the New York Yankees situation. When Paxton was pitching for the Yankees, how did you feel as a Jays fan? Well, I would like Paxton to do well, but I don't want the Yankees to win. Michael O'Connor looks to be the guy who gets the ball first. Michael O'Connor is a UBC product. And for those who want the best for Canadian players and certainly Canadian quarterbacks, which we haven't seen in any regular form for a really long time. I know Brandon Bridge and other guys got small opportunities. Michael O'Connor might have the ball and a chance to run with it here a little bit, Jamie. And I imagine Lions fans in this part of the country are going, okay, we don't necessarily want the Stamps to win, but we'd like to see Michael O'Connor perform well. Well, it's kind of win-win for Lions fans in a way, right? Because as you say, you get the chance for a Canadian quarterback to come in and potentially make some hay 
in the CFL. Now you can do the James Paxton thing, right? Where you're rooting for, maybe you're rooting for shootouts, right? For, for Michael O'Connor to throw for 300 yards and three touchdowns, but for the Stampeders defense to get lit up even worse the other way. So they still lose the game that you can root for that. The other side of things is look, okay. If he doesn't do well, kind of opens up some space for the Lions to to go on a bit of a run in the Western Conference here in the CFL, in the Western Division, and, and take advantage of the fact that the Stampeders don't have their number one quarterback available to them. Here's the other news that's coming out today. Tim Tebow got cut, which, yep. given how he performed, is no surprise. We mentioned this yesterday. He just looked so out of his element with the Jacksonville Jaguars trying to make it as a tight end that – I mean, he, he looked like he had no idea how to block at the NFL, yeah. which is not surprising considering he's never played tight end before, Jamie. Yes, for all the – and this happens every year, right, where there's a player, usually a quarterback, who's very athletic in college. They're coming through the draft, but they don't have great throwing mechanics or whatever it is. And, oh, just move to tight end as if it's the simplest position in the world to take up. Anyone can do it, right? You're big and strong. Just be a tight end. No, as it turns out, there's actually a certain amount of technique to being a blocking tight end in the NFL. Blocking is a big part of the job still, unless you're Travis Kelsey. And, hey, he's actually a really good blocker too. So it's not that surprising that it didn't work out. And I think what happened here is, look, obviously he has a relationship with the head coach, Urban Meyer. He is extremely popular in that part of Florida, in the state of Florida in general. So it generates some extra interest for training camp. But when you saw what it looked like on the field, you kind of owe it to your the rest of your team to move on from it, right? Like you can't really put a guy out there who's performing like that when everyone else is fighting for a job, whenever, you know, when he's responsible for, for blocking guys who are coming to tackle his teammates, it's hard to justify that to the rest of your team. Right. So there are two parts to this. One part on the, on the part of the player to me is admirable. And not that I've ever been the biggest Tim Tebow fan in the world, but I'll give Tim Tebow this. This guy was a deity among college players and there were some who thought he could make it in the NFL, some who thought he would fail, which he ultimately did after having a very short slice of success, and he wasn't able to continue on as a quarterback. Tebow was handed a great job with great pay, high-profile position, and he decided he wanted to pursue baseball, which is a real long shot where he was coming at it from, but he said, I'm going to give it a go. And this was the same thing, and maybe even yep. a further stretch of the imagination, Jamie. So... I give Tim Tebow, the person, a lot of credit for saying, hey, man, I'm not afraid to fail. I'm not afraid to go out there and get cut. I'm not afraid to go out there and not make it to the major leagues. I'm willing to give that a go if somebody will give me the opportunity. I've got time for that. I don't have a problem with Tim Tebow. Look, if somebody's extending you the opportunity, yeah, take it. Why not? I, I, I don't I don't judge Tim Tebow in this situation at all. I mean, I don't I don't I guess I do judge Urban Meyer and the Jaguars a little bit. It's pretty cynical. And as you said, he really had no business being out there as a tight end. But again, if if you're that passionate about football, you want to be around the game as a player as long as you can. If somebody's willing to take the chance, yeah, go for it. This to me, this isn't about Tim Tebow as much as it is about this the you know the brass for the Jaguars. Okay, and we'll get to that in a second. But you and I both know that there are a lot of people players who are held in such high regard for their athletic careers that they don't want anything to knock them down and would have said, well, yep. I, got a, I got a great TV job, great pay, high profile. Why am I going to go do something that is likely not to end in success? There are a lot of people who wouldn't go down that road. Now, yeah. Well, yeah. the part of the Jaguars that you bring up is interesting. 
Does it undermine Urban Meyer's credibility whatsoever as the head coach of that team that he was willing to give this opportunity to Tim Tebow despite it likely failing and trying to sell his players on doing all the right things and earning your opportunities? Well, I will say this. If he had if he had delayed ending it any longer, then yes, it would have impacted his credibility, right? Because if you're any other player and you turn in the performance that Tebow did in a preseason game and you don't have a history at the position, you're getting cut. So it was really, really important that Urban Meyer took this step now because if it had dragged on any farther, his his credibility absolutely would have been impacted. As it is, it's hard to say. I, it really depends... You know, do the players see Tebow as taking a more deserving player's spot at camp, right? It is How has it been handled? Has he been given special treatment at training camp? Any of those things. I think Urban Meyer is still early enough that maybe not every player was thrilled that Tebow was there, but he can move on from it because it has ended at the right time. We gave you the Bo Levi Mitchell injury news as per Justin Dunk earlier in the show, and we repeated it this segment. Not good news for a local product here, Jamie. Chase Claypool exited practice Uh-oh. with a leg injury, was helped off the field by Big Ben and Eric Ebron, wasn't putting any weight on whatever was hurting him. I don't know what leg, I don't know what part of the leg, but a lower body injury. There's nearly a month until the Steelers' first game. Let's hope this is not serious, but the Hopefully, sophomore sensation for the Pittsburgh Steelers, who hails from Abbotsford, left practice today and was not able to put any weight on the injury. Yeah, that's scary. That's really scary, especially the part about not being able to put any weight on the injury itself. You don't want to go right to the worst-case scenario, right? Like, let's let's hear what the team has to say. Let's hear the update. But anytime you hear a description of an injury like that, it's hard not to be very pessimistic. Fingers crossed that it's not that, that it's a scare that he's able to get right back out there sooner rather than later. But, ooh, yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, mm, that's a really difficult one for him. Man, you hope he's okay. Knock on wood here. He had such an electric rookie season. And there was a time last year where you went, hey, I know what's going on with – with Justin Herbert and Justin Jefferson, but Chase Claypool's got to be in the discussion for Offensive Rookie of the Year in this league. Well, just the way he was getting to the end zone so consistently, right? It was it was incredible. And the way they were using him in so many different ways in that offense, yeah, ultimately Justin Herbert and Justin Jefferson pulled away, but he was in that conversation. Texter saying, I played against Chase Play School in high school. It wasn't fun. I wish him the best <laughs> with his recovery. Yeah, he was a dominant force, man. Just a yeah. man among boys. I can only imagine as just kind of a random, you know, high school cornerback in BC high school football being asked to go up against uh, Chase Claypool. It was like Mike Pekka saying when the coach came to him, hey, you're you're uh, you're responsible for Peter Forsberg tonight. And at least Pekka was already in the NHL. Being responsible for Chase Claypool at the uh, high school level, that's, that's a tough, tough, tough ask. I've been around the sport for a really long time in the province. Schools like Notre Dame don't just show up on the regular to recruit BC high school football no. athletes. And, yes, it is becoming more more prevalent for athletes from this part of the country, from BC high school, to wind up at, at bigger schools in the United States. But you got to do something special to get ND on your radar. Oh, yeah. yeah they, they, can be very, they can afford to be very selective about who they devote resources to trying to sign. Excellent conversation with our listeners once again today. You guys brought it. We appreciate it. It's been fun the last couple of days as Jamie and I pilot this fresh off my vacation. Good show today, booked by Roger Shergill. Some excellent discussion. Greg Ballack, big ups to you. 
back at Mission Control. Jamie, what do you what do you say? Should we do this again tomorrow? I mean, I guess we should probably. <laughs> Our boss is going to make us, so yeah, let's do it. Yeah, he might not be listening. He might be sleeping as he's filling in on the morning <laughs> show this week. But yeah, it'll get back to him somehow, some way. If we decided to opt out right now. OT is coming up in the next time slot, and it literally is OT. Caroline Frolic, she will be part of that today, and that's why I say it's OT. Jamie, she was on doing updates today, and now she's going to be part yeah. of this three-woman show that's coming up next on our station for the next couple of hours. She's pulling a little extra duty. Good for her. Should be a fantastic day on the program. Give it a listen. It's a great show. You'll get hooked. All the best to all of our listeners. We'll talk again tomorrow. Have a great Tuesday.